Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulpnet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, since 1996, online at the In this Pulp Event Podcast, comic book writer, editor, and critic, Tony Isabella, moderates a discussion of the Street and Smith comics. It was recorded on August 13, 2015 at Pulp Fest 2015 in Columbus, Ohio. Joining Tony R., author and pulp historian, Will Murray, journalist and pop historian, Michelle Nolan, N., pulp, comic, and old-time radio historian, and publisher of Sanctum Books, Anthony Tallinn. Here is Tony. I have been uh, chosen to be moderator of this panel which is comprised of, of three of our finest, most knowledgeable pulp and comics historians. And then there's me, who doesn't know this stuff anywhere near as well as they do, so I get to ask the questions. Uh, and if you behave, we will let you ask some questions, too. Who is who? Okay, Anthony Tollin, Will Murray, Michelle Nolan, and my name is Elmer Fudd. I own a mansion and a yacht. <laughs> uh, the first obvious question is, uh, Street and Smith was, was a leading publisher of pulp magazines. Uh, who wants to field the question about how they came into the comics business? You take it, Tony. Okay. Uh, they really came into the comic book business largely because of Walter Gibson, who had always been a fan of newspaper comic strips and kept pushing them to try and get the shadow uh, into comic books. He saw that uh, pulp magazines were competing for space with uh, uh, these new comic books and just how well comic books were doing and at least as early as 1937 he was lobbying Street and Smith to do comic books. At that time, however, almost all the major newspaper strips had already been booked and Gibson suggested they launch their own shadow newspaper strip and reprint in the comic books. Uh, Street and Smith at the time was not interested in doing comics because they printed their own material in-house and were not interested in farming out printing. But in 1939, Alan Grammer was recruited as the company's new president from Curtis Publications. And uh, he started instituting a lot of changes, including getting rid of the company-owned presses. And, uh, uh, Curtis, of course, had done comic books, and uh, uh, 1939, one of the interesting things that happened was that Busy Arnold, a uh, newspaper, newspaper man friend of Gibson's, who was the founder of Quality Comics, came with Gibson to Street and Smith to try and, interest, to get, try and get the rights to do a 16-page weekly Sunday comic book of The Shadow. And uh, Street and Smith was not interested in letting go of the rights. So instead, Busy Arnold recruited Will Eisner to do another character in a slouch hat and dark black-blue suit, The Spirit. And the first year of The Spirit is very much in the, the same type of stories as The Shadow. Later, it became you know, much more humorous and lighthearted. But the first year was very much in the same milieu as The Shadow. Uh, one of the other interesting things is that Street and Smith originally intended uh, what became Shadow Comics to be Astounding Comics with Iron Monroe, uh, based on John W. Campbell's Iron Monroe as the central 
the lead character because uh, Shadow Comics 1 came out before Batman Comics 1, and the big things before that were unsuccessful. It were Superman and Buck Rogers, and they felt that Iron Monroe would be the best one to get that, that kind of market. Uh, at the very last, then it was announced as and advertised as Treat and Smith Comics, and then at the very last moment, in the 11th hour, in the last weeks, it was retitled Shadow Comics because the Shadow movie serial was coming into movie theaters and to capitalize. But a number of features in that first issue, like I think there were eight pages of Nick Carter and six pages of The Shadow. Uh, okay. Uh, I think what's interesting about the Street and Smith comics is, of course, they try to put everything they possibly could put into their first issues. The first issue of The Shadow had The Shadow. It started Doc Savage serial. Um, Nick Carter was there. Carrie Cashin. Carrie Cashin was there. A couple other of their random. Horatio Alger. Horatio Alger from the dime novel days. And they, because comics in 1940 were proliferating and, and selling very well, unless you did really bad stuff. Frank Merriwell also. Yeah, Frank Merriwell. Within a few months, two months, I think, Doc Savage 1 came out, and that added the Whisperer and Click Rush and some other characters. Norgel with the second issue. Yeah. Um, then came Bill Barnes, a character that actually, whose own magazine had actually been canceled or, or he'd been mm -hmm. phased out of his own magazine. He was in the back of Doc Savage, but they decided they would do Bill Barnes, and that did very well. Um, and and they were, Street Smith was cautious. They didn't put out a lot of titles fast, and they didn't put out a lot of titles in their approximately 10-year period of doing, I guess nine-year period of doing comics, but they did have a, a, an interesting handful of titles, such as Red Dragon, which was a, a kid strip, a humorous, magical thing. Um, a lot of one-shots. Some of them Walter Gibson wrote, like, uh, was it Tell It to the Marines? Was that uh, the Devil thing? Dogs. Devil Dogs. Devil Dogs was a, was a thing that uh, Gibson came up with. And then Otto Binder did Remember Pearl Harbor, which came out just like three months after Pearl Harbor. Which is fast production. Um, the interesting thing about the Street and Smith comics is they were, they were shop created. They were pretty hastily assembled. And it took quite a while for them to, to, to find a, a level of quality that people like today. And that's post-war when Bob Powell started doing The Shadow and Doc Savage and Nick Carter. And also Bruce Elliott started writing The Shadow and Doc Savage mm -hmm. and probably was a better comic book writer than Gibson because of his dialogue, similar to radio. I mean, he knew how to do snappy dialogue, mm -hmm. knew how to do character bits. He was a very visual writer and thinking, you know, thinking of things that would work. And we should mention that Walter Gibson wrote almost all the shadow comics from number two to, we're not sure, about about 47 or so. Right. And uh, three stories in an issue. Well, sometimes. he was writing uh, before he, the shadow dropped from twice a month a monthly, he was writing 30 pages a month of Shadow Comics and 30 pages a month of Super Magician. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, it was one of the things I, I realized when I wrote the press release on the January 75th anniversary of the Street and Smith Comics is that I don't think, with the exception of Walt Disney's Comics and Stories, the first issue, that there has ever been a comic that debuted with as many pre-proven well-known properties mm. in it. And not necessarily well done, yeah. but 
Vern Green, the shadow strip by Vern Green was well done, and, and Iron Monroe by well, featured in Shadow Comics 1, Otto Binder's first comic scripting. And with the third issue, uh, Theodore Sturgeon took over writing the comic books, his only comic book writing he ever did. So you had some major talents in these books. You just, I don't think, had an editorial team that really appreciated comics. You know, you, you had around a similar time, uh, DC, sorry, Thrilling Comics lost their editors, first Mort Weisinger and then Jack Schiff and Bernie Breslauer to DC Comics. That uh, while John Nanovic did not like comics and really wanted very little to do with uh, the Street and Smith comics, you know, people like Weisinger and Schiff saw the handwriting on the wall and moved to the field that was uh, dwarfing comics and sales. By 1941, you know, now at its very peak, The Shadow and Doc Savage sold about 300,000 copies an issue and was probably down by that time. But by 1941, The Shadow was selling 425,000 copies an issue. Now, if you're a publishing company and you have wartime paper rationing and you're limited to what how much paper you can get. Do you use the paper for a 128-page pulp magazine or two 64-page comic books that are going to sell much better and sell 90% or 95% of their print runs? Uh, we should talk about Super Magician since you brought it up. Walter Gibson once told me the story when he, he got rolling with the Shadow Comics. He had an idea putting his friend Blackstone in a comic book. He thought he could get the license from Blackstone. And he went to... Uh, Alan Grammer and said, you know, how many copies do you need to sell to um, do a Blackstone comic book? And Grammer, you know, floated a figure and Gibson said, I'll write it and I'll take half the print run and we'll, we'll, we'll give, do it, sell it at, the, at Blackstone's magic shows for, you know, cover price. And, and, and Grammer, who I guess had been a little bit on the fence, said, well, you know, then it's guaranteed and you can take our returns. Because you know dates didn't matter if you're selling them at a, at, a, at a theater, so they printed up I don't know 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 Super Magician, and it turned out to sell out the first issue. They there were no returns. To there go were to no Blackstone. returns, and, and Blackstone didn't get its copies till the second or third or whatever issue, because comics were hot and Super Magician. It was called Super Magic for the first issue. Was one of those things that hit a nerve. People liked it, and kids liked it. And it, it sold and sold, and you know it even continued after Street and Smith lost uh, Blackstone as a as a property. Became Master Magician and yeah. at uh, Timely, and then uh, EC was publishing EC did it. it. Yeah. So it was one of the one of the more successful. It, it outsold probably Doc Savage. It may not have outsold. Well, the fact that it ran. I mean, Super Magician ran. I think. Uh, 56 issues, 56, yeah. plus seven as Red Dragon after you know just the same features continued and was just retitled Red Dragon. So you're talking 63 issues then. Doc Savage had 20 issues, you know. So obviously, Super Magician was selling. I'd like to. Sure. I'd like to throw in a unique. I'd like to throw in a unique uh, aspect of Street and Smith that not many people realize. Um, no publisher in American history ever published three unbelievably successful sports publications. None. It was amazing. Frank Merriwell, Dick Merriwell's brother, and Frank Merriwell Jr. <laughs> appeared in over 1,000 
dime novels, including a few pulps at the very end, from 1896 to 1916. These were read uh, weekly, but mostly by boys, but by a number of girls based on the letters that I've seen, and I've got a bunch of them, and those are letters. There's, there's about 20% of the readers were girls, which tells you something about sports and how we were ignoring girls' sports for so many years. But anyway, um, Frank Merriwell was the Superman of his day. He literally was portrayed as a superhuman being in terms of sportsmanship, intelligence, always winning, that kind of thing. And, and he also had many, many adventures outside the arena of sports. And those novels were printed in real time meaning Merriwell became a coach after eight years of high school and college. And of course his college was Yale. And what other college could it have been in the 1890s and 1900s? Anyway, after Frank Merriwell, and they were reprinted in endless books in the 20s and 30s, so this went on forever. Um, even, even great-grandparents and even some grandparents today know all about Frank Merriwell. Okay, in, in the 1923 to 43 period was by far the most successful pulp sports magazine ever, Street and Smith Sports Story Magazine. 427 issues and two annuals uh, published uh, for most of the run as a uh, twice a month. Nothing even, the next most uh, successful one in terms of issues was 85 issues in sports novels from Popular, so you can tell it was just an amazingly successful publication. And then came the only successful sports comic book ever in terms of net longevity number. True Sport Picture Stories started in 1940 as sport comics. First four issues were sports comics. And um, uh, they were, like the first issue has a young, young boy dreaming of Lou Gehrig who at the time had just, the year before, had to quit playing because of his, uh, the illness that killed him, but was still alive when True Sport, when Sports Stories first came out. This comic book was, it ran 50 issues from 1940. It, it, Tony, didn't it come out after Bill Barnes? I, I, think, I think so. I think it was the fourth one, but anyway, <clears throat> it, ran four, it ran 50 issues. That is almost more issues than all other sports comic books combined. And not only that, if you talk about a golden age comic book run of 50 issues, you look at things we think of as being hugely successful then, like Captain America, which ran 73 issues, I, I think, and then was the, revived. Then two horror issues. Right. I mean, you had Green Lantern ran 38, 38 issues. Uh, Flash is 104. All Flash was what? 32. Uh, 32. So these were, you know, for a sports comic, that was a very substantial, 50 issues was a substantial run for a comic book with all that competition back Particularly then. only a, a, a nine-year run. I mean, it was 1940-49. What was fascinating about it, and this is, this is what made Street and Smith so unusual, unique, actually. I wrote a book uh, some few years ago called Ball Tales, and it's the only study of, uh, of American uh, football, basketball, and baseball fiction. For I might also, there's a chapter, the only chapter ever written on girls' fiction in a book. 
as far as I know. And this book has an appendix with um, uh, appendix with um, all the comic books that listed sports fiction, except I made a big mistake. I assumed that true sport picture stories, even though I had almost all of them by then, and now I do have all of them, I assumed that it didn't run fiction. Uh-uh. It ran fiction. And why they called it, they should have called it something else. But anyway, I didn't list the fiction characters in this, in this appendix, and I'm embarrassed. But I just assumed, you know, like, not, I mean, as a newspaper reporter, I should not assume, but nevertheless, I assumed that it didn't run fiction, but it did. And so what happened with True Sport Picture Stories was uh, Bob Powell, who was actually an incredibly talented artist, he, he delivered some wonderful sports stuff in, in the post-war period. But the only reason this, man, this comic book failed, ended, was because Street and Smith killed all their pulps and comic books at roughly the same time in 1949. And they basically, uh, Astounding survived well, because it was on a separate advertising flat, had its own advertising with it. And it was a digest. It and, looked hip. <laughs> but uh, they canceled anything in the comic book or pulp advertising flats. And partly it was, I think, because they were so successful with things like Street and Smith Sports Annual and Mademoiselle that they moved into a different area, you know, where their slicks were selling so well in the new era. You know, I think DC, I think one of the reasons Superman and DC survived is that DC was the right size company with the right level of greed. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not saying that in a bad sense. I mean, this is a capitalistic thing that, you know, they did not have many other options to move into. And so Street and Smith was able to become very successful doing a more contemporary magazine and, and moved out of this. Well, it may also have been because William de Grucci, who was in charge of the comics from not quite the beginning, but I guess close to the beginning, he was their promotions guy. He, uh, he had, I think he borrowed money from someone at Street and Smith and didn't pay it back, and he was fired. And so the, he, he was the man running the, the works, and maybe they just didn't want to bother to fire, hire a replacement because they didn't care. And Howard, Howard Nostrin had said that he was apparently somehow kind of... Uh, Shady. Paying, well, Walter Gibson had set up the Penn Art Comic Store Studio with him, a comic book shop based in Philadelphia. And apparently, DeGrucci was the owner and was paying the artists like $15 a page and paying himself about the same as he was paying the artists. So there was apparently some, some question there as to, uh, you know, Street and Smith not getting everything they were paying for in, in the comic book line. Okay. I have some follow-up questions here okay. based on, on what people who know what they're talking about have said. Uh, Tony, uh, you talked about how the comic book was a more profitable thing than a pulp magazine. Uh, what was the average price of, of a Street and Street pulp magazine at that time? And comics, I assume, were 10 cents. 10 cents, but I think, you know, the thing is it's just, half the amount of paper, and there's, you can say, the color printing cost. But it was form. the same cost, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Will, you, you uh, knew, knew Gibson and interviewed him quite a bit. Um, did he approach writing prose, comic books, differently than he approached writing prose? From what I recall of him talking to me, 
he, as often as not, he, he'd dig out one of his old pulp novels or possibly his outline or synopsis to it uh, and just took the story and compressed it. Um, he, he, he did tell me an anecdote. Some nephew or neighbor of his, a kid, got a hold of some of his, his shadow outlines and said, well, why don't you print these? <laughs> these, are, these read faster. And I, I, that may have given the idea of just taking one of his outlines and just using that as the matrix for doing comics. I don't remember him talking about the mechanics of it beyond that. And I don't know who taught him to do the comic form. So that's something I just never got around to asking. I just know he did a lot of comics for a lot of houses. And he liked comics. And by the way, one of the amazing things about Walter Gibson's comic book career, as documented by Will Murray and uh, some articles on Will Murray's amazing comic book career, Walter worked for at least 24 different comic book companies. He wrote Captain Marvel and Bulletman stories for Fawcett. He wrote, uh, created a Space Western for Charlton. He wrote uh, Crime Stories, the lead features in Crime Does Not Pay for, for Lev Gleason. I mean, he had a major comic book career and had Walter not had these phenomenal careers as a pulp novelist with The Shadow and as a writer on Magic, he'd probably be remembered as a major comic book mm -hmm. person. But yeah. his, his work in The Shadow novels and as a writer on Magic dwarfed everything he else he did. But he wrote phenomenal volumes of comic book work. And he was still doing comics in the 1960s. And he also pioneered industrial and commercial giveaway comics, which, which he would produce. Uh, one thing um, I found interesting, and I, I really wondered if the Bill Barnes comic book was edited by John W. Campbell, because we know that Campbell was involved in pu pushing an idea on Gibson to do an atomic bomb story. And who edited the uh, pulp uh, stories, Tony? What? Who edited the pulp stories? F. F. Orland Tremaine was the original editor, but when Bill Barnes moved to the back of Doc Savage, John Nanovic was the editor at the time. The Bill Barnes comic. So Campbell happened. had nothing to do with that. No, but you know, all those editors would would share manuscripts and and, and fact check for each other. So there was a lot of inter office uh, support of each other's projects. But we we mentioned before, and I know Michelle has this comic book, which Otto Binder turned out the writing like pretty much overnight in a couple of days. Remember Pearl Harbor? Amazing. But the you know it came out like three months after Pearl Harbor, but like six months after Pearl Harbor. A comic book came out, Bill Barnes, number seven or number nine, I'm trying to remember. But, and it's a 34-page story in which American pilot Bill Barnes is sent to blow Japan into the ocean with a U-235 bomb. And there are several pages of descriptions as to how powerful a U-235 bomb would be and the triggering mechanism and, you know, how it would have 30,000 times the power of, of TNT. And actually, Gibson, um, it was uh, John W. Campbell who supplied the scientific information on, on potentials for atomic bombs to Gibson. But Gibson himself knew of Japanese mythology that eventually there was a myth that Japan would eventually tip into the ocean. And he was also very aware that earthquakes, uh, that J Japan and Tokyo had a major earthquake fault going under it. So in Gibson's story, it's a little bit more finesse than what was done with the actual atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where Gibson had the bomb dropped into the trench, the earthquake trench, outside of Tokyo Harbor,
to trigger a massive earthquake that tips Japan into the ocean. And on the cover of that issue, it said, in this issue, we show you through cold scientific fact how to blow Japan into the ocean. And uh, the G-men were not, the government and government agents were not terribly happy with that <laughs> comic book and that story and paid a visit to Street and Smith as they later would with Cleve when Cartwell. Cleve Cartwell's yeah. story uh, <laughs> deadline appeared in Astounding Science Fiction. But, I mean, they just launched the top secret Manhattan Project with the intent of, you know, developing an atomic bomb to, to end the war. And suddenly, it's not only a story in a comic book, it's a 34-page story taking up more than half the comic book, but it's announced on the cover, you know. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, despite the, you know, there is a lot of dreck in Street and Smith comics, especially in the, the mid-40s after they lost the Jack Bender shop. But there are some real highlights and things like the Bill Barnes story with the atomic bomb that Gibson wrote um, are just amazing things and really, I think, should be much better known in, in the world of comics that just, you know, three years before Hiroshima, there was a story about the World War II ending by an American pilot dropping an atomic bomb. Tony, don't you think the Street and Smith comics in many ways were better done in some ways than the latter pulps? Uh, and, be, and the second part of this question is tell me and tell the audience how, I, it seems to me that the amount of words in a comic book is so much less than in a pulp magazine that Street and Smith probably had to pay a great deal less to produce a comic book than a pulp, and they could, in turn, make a great deal more profit as a result. Well, I would say they, first off, made a lot more profit just because comic books during the war years were selling 95% of print runs, generally, right. and, and what I said. Uh, Adults read them a lot. Right, but you, know, you also have to say, once World War II happened, a lot of the audience for pulps, you know, young males in their yeah, late teens or 20s, went overseas. Whereas the kids who bought comic books were still buying them, and there were these wartime paper shortages where almost anything you printed in a comic book would sell. So it probably cost less. I mean, generally, the average price for a comic book script was uh, in the mid 40s at Street and Smith, uh, $5 a page. In the very earliest issue, Otto Binder got $5 per story for his first scripts, which is why he left comic books after writing five stories and came back a year later. Um, by the mid-40s, uh, Binder was getting $17 a page from Fawcett to write Captain Marvel and stories. And $17 a page in the mid-40s regarding inflation would be uh, roughly $250 today. So and, you and pay I, your rent with one story. Well, yeah, and I would also say that when I started at DC in 74, you know, our top writers were getting, the very top writers at DC, people like Denny O'Neill, were getting $15 a page. Uh, you know, it was, to think that golden age writers, you know, comics were selling so well in the 40s that they'd be paying a writer like Otto Binder $17.50 a page. We should I mention... I think 17 was my first grade at DC. I, I'd been getting more at Marvel, but, you know, DC. And that was in 1970 what? 76. Okay, so factoring inflation, that's the equivalent of roughly $85 today. 
Math is hard. <laughs> Not if you majored in economics. <laughs> For me, at least. We should mention that while comic books did sell probably 95 or 99 percent of its print run during the war, so did pulps, and so did everything else, because between the shortages of paper and the huge demand for reading material, everything was selling. Everything's cool. But there wasn't enough paper to print everything you wanted, and a pulp magazine consisted of, I think, six or eight signatures, each one of them being, you know, um, 16 pages. 16 pages which, you know, um, was still uh, a lot more pages than a comic book. A comic book would be 52 pages at that time, if I'm not mistaken. Or even 36. They cut 36 a lot, or of, them, a lot of them got cut way back. But, but you know, a, a, a pulp magazine was 112 or 128 pages, depending, or 96 with some, some people at, during the shortages. So you, you could just put your paper, which was scarce and regulated, you just had to find your allocations for paper. So I think if they had the paper, you know, they would have kept everything going because everything right. was selling. I said, Will, uh, Bill Lampkin, I believe it was, posted a graph of the sales of Street and Smith's total pulp line year by year, and I mean month monthly sales on average. And one of the incredible things is that the digest era of like 44, 45, 46, were some of the highest per issue sales in the history of Street and Smith. It was fewer magazines, but the magazines that were there were selling very, very well and much better than they were in the late 30s, you know, on average. And, and don't forget that all the, all the pulp companies <coughs> put a great many of their titles on hiatus during World War II. Uh, most of them published comic books and all of them lost so many readers and had so many problems with their paper rationing that there wasn't a company that wasn't severely affected during World War II and cut back. I've done year-by-year -year counts of pulps, and 1944 and 45 are the all-time low. And even after World War II, when pulps were supposed to be dying, there were many more pulps printed both in terms of number of titles and number of issues sold than there were in 44 and 45, because so little, uh, so so few pulps uh, were not put on high years. Michelle, I have a, a follow-up to the sports comics question, mm -hmm. uh, and feel free to include a plug for your panel that uh, <laughs> takes place at 10:50. Uh, 10:50 of all things. Uh, I'll be asleep. But Did you say 10:50 tonight? I said 10 tonight. 10:50 tonight. When when old guys like me are, I'll do anything to get into pulp fest for free. But um, <laughs> I'm just curious. Were were any I mean, today, you know, with the, the sports magazine and everything, there, there's involvement with, with players, whether it's interviews or occasionally a player will write an article. Was there any, any athlete involvement in the sports pulps or the sports comics? Yes, but it was not ever, almost, well, I can't say ever, but almost never young athletes. Of course, never blacks or other minorities. They didn't exist in sports then except in very limited college roles. Um, in the pulp sports era, which I'll talk more about on that sports panel plug. Yes. Um, the, uh, it's called Play Ball, and it takes place at 10.50 in this room. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyway, uh, before, you know, six people. But anyway, the thing is that uh, they publicized older athletes 
superstars like Ruth and Gehrig and DiMaggio and other people, but they also publicized managers endlessly. John McGraw, Casey Stengel later, um, and uh, Bill Terry and uh, Leo DeRocher and other managers. In other words, these pulps, they were written mostly for teenagers and young adults and young adults at heart. But they wanted to stress authority. They wanted to stress the benefits of management. Of These things were the ultimate statement of American capitalism and American philosophy that the boss knows what's best. And today, if you read Sports Illustrated or some of the other sport publications, 90% of the stories are on athletes under 25 years old and about 70% of those, by my estimate, are about blacks because they dominate sports, or at least the major team sports, so seriously. And so you, t today, the sports literature today, uh, Pulps had a lot of nonfiction in sports, the sports pulps, but literature today is devoted primarily to young people. And, and uh, as a result, they're suffering mightily on their circulation of the population over 50 or 60. Nobody over 50 or 60, except maybe me, reads stories about 20-year-olds who are having major issues in their lives. Uh, and they may be great athletes, but they're having problems. And this is something that is an incredible change in American culture. Our culture has gone from stressing the wisdom of the elderly, or old elders, let's say, to stressing the excitement that young people bring to the game. And uh, this is a major cultural shift in America, just a major cultural shift. It's also very similar to the 18 to 49 uh, age cohort that the advertisers are always seeking, you know. Almost everybody in this room, they don't care about you as a, as a consumer because they figure that you're not consuming, you're not going to consume enough or you're going to consume, you know, very little. So anyway, to answer your question, Tony, uh, sports nonfiction is radically different today than it was even 40 or 50 years ago when I was growing up radically different. I can't tell you how different it is. I'd like to mention uh, the fourth longest running Street and Smith comic book, which was an original comic book creation. And it was one, a character that first debuted in Shadow Comics, which was Super Snipe, the boy with the f most comic books in America. And this is the first documented fictional handling of comic book fan hoarding. And what was his name? Uh, Copy McFad. <laughs> and, uh, and, and why we know he, you know, uh, I mean, must have really been obsessive because if he had the most comic books in America and they were all Street and Smith, and Street and Smith only published like five comic books a month, he had to be getting multiple copies. <laughs> uh, but it was, as, as I pointed out elsewhere, I mean, before Big Bang Theory made the, you know, uh, made Geek Chic, uh, Copy McFad was the second strip closely following on the heels of Shelley Mayer's brilliant Scribbly and the Red Tornado. And uh, the artist on Super Snipe, 
uh, the original artist was named what again? He'd been Percy Crosby's assistant. George Marco. George, George Marco. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And later Ed Gruskin was scripting it. But Marco had been an assistant on the per Percy Crosby Skippy strip. And uh, uh, as I said, I think it's just very interesting that the fourth longest running, it ran 44 issues, which again is a substantial Golden Age comic book run. It was the first comic book devoted, as opposed to the features scribbling in the Red Tornado, which were four pages of, of all-American comics, but it was the first comic book to focus on a comic book fan and collector. I just, I just drifted away for a second there because I, I, I just got this image in my head of a news story where Wild High Comics finds the Copy McF uh, McFad uh, pedigree collection <laughs> and they start going for big bucks at auction. That would be a great piece of fan fiction, actually. Tony. Wasn't it true that virtually every newsstand in the Super Snipe series featured nothing but Street and Smith titles? Yes. <laughs> I mean, you saw all these panels with, you know, Shadow and Bill Barnes and all sports, all this, and there were no Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Captain America, all this. There was none of that in, in uh, Copy McFad. It was all Street and Smith. But it's, it's a <laughs> wonderful feature on just this kid's it's, imagination and this kid who thinks he's fighting Hitler. And, it's hysterically and funny. I, I cannot, I can't believe that it has not been archived and reprinted because it is such a natural for the comics market. And, and, I mean, if only I knew a publisher who had some connection <laughs> with Condé Nast and... and uh, yeah, but isn't Condé Nast like they don't care, right? <laughs> no, there have been some conversations, by the way, oh, really? okay. on that subject. That's good. Uh, <laughs> but, but Super Snipe is... They said it's it's a it's a comic book about a comic book fan, and the first, uh, the first and only. The uh, uh, no, certainly the first at least. Well, I mean the first major one. Right. The uh, uh, Tony, did you have some other questions or? Um, well, I just wanted to tell you, as I've told you before, that if you ever want to do new super snipe stories, I know this writer that would love to do them. Um, also, the same, would this writer also love to do whisperer stories? Yes. Well, not, not just write whisperer stories. I want to be the whisperer. <laughs> he, he's short. He's got a nasty temperament. He likes to punch out authority figures. I mean... You're perfect. It's my life. <laughs> um, I guess we'll... Let's see. We, we've got... Uh, we're going to throw it to questions, starting with that very eager young man back there. No, no, no. Back then, no. most comics no, were scripted. Uh, it, it, it. So they, they basically had to hone down their masters. Well, Walter, there weren't that many pulp writers. You know, I mean, there were struggling, beginning, starving young writers like Theodore Sturgeon and, and Otto Binder. Gibson, I think, was the only real major pulp writer who moved into comics with, you know, Avengers. But uh, then over at DC Comics, of course, you had Edmund Hamilton, uh, well, I mean, Green Lantern. Bill Finger started writing it, he was followed by Alfred Bester, who was followed by Henry Kuttner, who was followed by Edmund Hamilton, and, um, and then followed by David B. Reed, the assistant editor of Amazing Stories, and then finally Bob Kaniger and, and John Broom. So were the artists directed more closely? Well, 
No, they were written, you know, the writers would write scripts describing like a movie screenplay. It was really, uh, the Marvel method really came into fashion when Stan Lee was writing just about everything Marvel published. So he wanted the artist to do most of the plotting and working out of the story so he could just write the dialogue and write pretty much everything. Uh, DC at that time was certainly in the 40s and 50s and 60s, like Street and Smith, was going with full comic scripts where the writer would plan the story and describe what the artist was supposed to draw and, and write the, the copy. Uh, Tony, wasn't Stan the only editor in the entire field that had artists who were so commanding that they actually wanted to do it that way? Well, Wally Wood didn't want to do it that way. Yeah, but he didn't do that much work for Stan. That's uh, why. Uh, no, but Kirby, Ditko. Yeah, Kirby and Ditko were tremendously creative uh, and imaginative storytellers. And they wanted to do the way Stan wanted it. They liked that. They had more power. They had more authority. They had more influence. Well, and Jack just had this boundless imagination where all Stan had to say is, all, generally the most Stan would say in an issue of Fantastic Four is, let's have Dr. Doom be the villain this issue. Uh, by the way, <laughs> uh, you know, the, uh, and then Jack Kirby would come in and bring in a story and with little notes on the sides of the panel saying what was happening and Stan would write the dialogue to go with it. Uh, the, uh, one of the things I, I I will mention about the Street and Smith comics is that the early comic book creators, uh, the early superhero creators, uh, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Joe Simon, uh, Bill Finger and Bob Kane, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, Will Eisner, when they were teenagers, their superheroes were pulp heroes. <laughs> so when it came time to develop superheroes in comics, <clears throat> they were naturally inspired. You know, Will and I tracked down, you know, Bill Finger had admitted that his first shadow novel was a takeoff, his first Batman story was a takeoff in a shadow novel. And when I started these books, I decided I wanted to try and find out what that one was because I thought it would be a commercial thing. And with Will, Will's help, we got together over 20 minutes on the phone one night and found which story it was. And, and ethics, it was out-and-out plagiarism. The ethics of 1940 superheroes were taken <clears throat> directly from Frank Merriwell and his ethics. There was no, no difference. And uh, Superman, uh, Batman had a gun in the first few stories, but... Because the shadow had had an automatic. Superman never, uh, never killed anybody in the, in the, well, I don't know about the first couple books, but basically he never killed anybody, just like Frank Merriwell even his most hated enemies in sports, he never did anything nasty to them beyond beating their brains out every time on the field. And, and Superman was the same way. Um, I can remember my parents were utterly shocked in the episode The Stolen Costume in the first series of Superman when he takes um, Vidan Borg, and I can't remember the guy who played the, the villain's role, takes him up to a mountain and they've discovered his secret identity and he leaves them there and says, don't move, I'll be back with food. And of course they move and they die. Off, they fall off the mountain and die. Well, the Superman that killed him, it was a fall. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, that, my, my, my dad was utterly flabbergasted that that happened. And, and uh, you know, I can remember I was, I was five or six years old when I saw that and 
and they told me, you can't believe in Superman, he's partly evil. And of course, I didn't believe that either, but I'm just saying that these things, these things were Frank Merriwell incarnate. He was the guy, Street and Smith, their dime novels, by and large, did not feature very many sports heroes. I mean, there were a few, but they didn't run very long. Frank Merriwell was the ultimate good guy. He, he was, Alan Hanley used to do, was it takeoff on Captain Marvel in the film? Yeah, good guy. Good guy. Well, Frank Merriwell was the ultimate original good guy, and the first ultimate original good guy in all of American literature. Um, if you want to go look at a super, a super human person, he was, he was at 20,000 words a week for, tw for 20 years. And then, of course, with, with The Shadow, Walter Gibson created the first dark hero in finding a way to make, give the hero the iconic charisma of the melodrama villain. Uh, where, you know, the most interesting character in the melodrama was always this nightly whiplash or the Dracula character, you know, not Jonathan Harker. <laughs> and uh, Walter found a way to make the good guy have all the dark charisma of evil. And, uh, and on that cheerful note, <laughs> uh, next well, up one, at 1010 is Saddle Up, a look at the Western heroes of the thrilling group, followed by 1050, Playing Ball, a look at the sports pulps, and that will be followed by movies, Out of Mind and Pickman's Model. Thank you, Anthony, Will. Oh, we got a question? Okay, a question. make it quick. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just curious if any of Astounding's interior illustrators or cover artists ever did any of the work for the, uh, the uh, comic, especially Elliot Gold, I always liked his work. And what was the date on that Bill Barnes and Bob issue? Uh, that was, uh, I think, uh, came out about May or June of 1942. But uh, Ed Cartier uh, did some illustrations, for, uh, became a comic book artist, did some comic book stories, which I've reprinted a few of them in my Shadow books, if you come to my table, my Sanctum book table tomorrow, I can show you some of Ed Cartier's uh, comic book stories. Okay, thank you, Anthony, Will, Michelle. Thank you. Uh, thank you for putting up with me, and enjoy your Pulp Fest. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.